Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hi, it's Katie Carpenter, and I'm your host for this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. Dairy in New York State is the largest single segment of our agriculture industry. We are pretty good at making milk and also pretty good at making delicious, value-added dairy products. New York makes the most cream cheese in the world and beats every other state in producing the most yogurt, cottage cheese, and sour cream. Today, we are going to speak with two guests who are both dairy farmers, and one of our guests is a teacher too. First, you'll meet our friend Paul Molesky, who serves as the operations manager for Allen Waite Farm in Eastern New York. Paul is a young farmer, and I think you will enjoy hearing his story of growing up on a beef operation, but finding a passion in dairy farming. I feel so lucky to talk with you today, Paul. Along with being operations manager for Allen White Farm, you also have your own farming operation and hold a significant national leadership position in agriculture. We will dig into all of that, but first can you tell me how you got your start in agriculture? Where did you find your passion? Certainly, you know, I have a family farm that I grew up on here in Scaticoke, New York. So the family farm was one that my grandfather started when he retired. And together with him and my father, three generations of Pauls are farming together to grow hay and raise Hereford beef cows. Tell me a little bit more about your home farm operation. Uh, So you grew up on the beef farm and and you've grown the operation today. Can you tell us a little bit about where it was and where it's gone to today? Yeah, that's right. So I was about seven years old when the farm started, and um, you know my grandfather was happy to have both myself, my younger sister, and younger brother as free or maybe cheap labor. Today, um, the farm operates on about 150 acres um, that we were actually able to expand with a recent land purchase. And on that farm, we have a little bit of, of pasture ground and we do have some hay ground as well. So in addition to what we have right there at home, we do rent some land off of the farm that's all in all in hay. So all in all, we have about 250 acres of, of hay and we raise about 75 beef cows. Now with the, that, those beef cattle that you have, how do you market them? Who is your market? How do you sell those animals? So our best market for our cows is um, selling freezer beef into the community. We don't sell individual cuts, but what our customers can do is they can buy a quarter, a half, or a whole cow and store that beef at home to use throughout the year or if they really like beef throughout the next couple months. So unfortunately, we don't have enough customers to sell all of our cows that way. So in the fall, before snow starts to fly, we do sell some of our feeder calves that we've um, that we've had been born throughout the year. And now, when you sell those feeder calves, how, where do they go? Uh, they probably go to an auction, but then 
where might they end up after that? Yeah, so those, those feeder cows would go through an auction um, and then buyers would um, presumably take them to you know, another part of the country where they could be on grass for several months and then ultimately go into um, being finished um, on, a, on, a, on a feedlot and then they would ultimately end up as, as, as beef as well. That's really interesting. Um, so you are really looking at your beef operation in so many different ways with many different markets. You have customers who want to know all the Pauls on the farm and, um, and trust you and really want your uh, how you raise animals in their homes and in their bodies. And then you also are raising these animals to go into the larger beef market. Uh, so I think that's really interesting that you have so many different avenues. Now, where do your customers hear about you? So word of mouth is the best way that we have to spread our, um, you know, to spread our brand. We've had people who have been with us right from the very beginning. That you know, when I was seven years old, they were customers, and they keep coming back every year, every eighteen months, for another cow. Um, those are those are our our best customers. Not only do you have your home beef operation, but you also have a pretty big role here at Allen Wheat Farm where you serve as the operations manager. Can you just give us a snapshot and overview of the operation here on this dairy farm? That's right. So my family's farm, although in the summertime we are very busy, um, there's there's other times of the year that are quite a bit more quiet. Um, so my, my full-time job is as the operations manager of Allen Waite Farms. So Allen Waite Farms is a seventh generation farm, which is right up the road from where I grew up. And it's been in the family for seven generations and has grown from the very beginning. When I started working at Allen Waite Farms, it was my mission to lead a multicultural team through an aggressive expansion. So when I started, we were milking about 1,300 cows, and today we're milking about 2,800 cows. So as you can imagine, the farm has grown, and the, the barn, and the number of cows, but also the team so we have a lot more people working here on the farm as well. And that was, that was my focus right from the very beginning, working with the people who make all of this possible. I just love the spot that we're sitting in right now because out one set of windows to my left, uh, we have the beautiful Adirondack Mountains. But then on the right-hand side, we were looking at uh, one of the uh, more recent technologies in agriculture of uh, looking over in the observation area of a rotary parlor. So let's talk about technology and then let's talk about the people who are necessary for that technology. Tell us about this rotary parlor. Why is this important? Why is this an essential piece of your operation? Yeah, so the rotary parlor is really neat. Um, you know, I like to describe it as a merry-go-round for the cows. So when it's time for a group of cows to be milked, um, the group will come in. The cows will come in one by one, and then they'll get to ride around the merry-go-round, which takes about 12 minutes from the time they get on until they get off just on the other side, and they're milked while they ride. So there's a lot of technology in the, in the rotary parlor and actually on the cows. The cows are wearing an RFID tag, so RFID stands for radio frequency ID. So when the cow steps onto the parlor, the parlor reads her ID and then assigns her to the stall that she's standing in. Then we have milk meters and sensors 
that uh, will give us loads of information from the total production to conductivity, which is a, a, a relative gauge of quality, as well as milk flow. So all of that information uh, sent, to the, sent to the computer and that helps us to manage our, our, our cow herd. And uh, your cows, once they pop onto their stall and their RFID tag is is scanned, they only stay on that for one rotation. So what happens in that one rotation? That's right. So one rotation takes about 12 minutes, but the cow is not milked for the entire 12 minutes. So when the cow steps on the parlor, um, she will go to the first station where our first employee will be standing. And that's what we call the, the, the prep station. So we'll prepare the cow to be milked. So we apply a, a peroxide-based soap onto the cow's teat and udder, and then we'll strip out a couple strips of milk so that we can inspect the milk to make sure it's of a good quality, and then also to help stimulate the cow so that she'll let her milk down. So after that, the cow stays on the parlor and rides around for about a minute and a half or two minutes to the next station. So the next station is where we attach the unit. But before we do that, we take a clean towel and we dry off all of the soap that's on there. And then we'll attach the milking unit to the cow. So all this while, the parlor is, is still spinning. So the cow just continues to ride around, um, looking across the parlor at her, at her buddies. And, um, like I said, that, that milk meter senses the milk flow. So we've got it calibrated so that when the cow is nearly done milking, the unit will actually come off of her and then we have a takeoff, which pulls the unit back up and away from the cow. And that's, that, that's what we call an, an automatic takeoff. And for each cow, it's a little bit different, but our average is just under five minutes. Um, so that's kind of a common misconception with dairy farming is that cows are milked all day long. We do milk around the clock, but any one individual cow, anytime she comes into the parlor, is only milked for about five minutes. So because we milk three times a day, cows are milked for roughly 15 minutes per day. So to go back to the parlor, um, after that unit comes off, She'll just ride around the rest of the parlor, which you know, she'll probably have about a quarter of a turn left to go. So we have a third person who makes sure that each cow is, is milked out completely, and then will apply an iodine-based teat dip to the cow. So this serves two purposes. One, it's to protect against any sort of infection, and the iodine works to kill bacteria. But this dip also has a skin conditioner in it, so it makes sure that the skin stays nice and soft and, and healthy. And then the cow steps off the parlor and goes on with the rest of her day. I just love thinking about the technology that we use in agriculture and how that technology is used in almost every bit of our lives, um, but is adapted in different ways. So you're talking about RFID, uh, that uh, each cow has a, her, you know, her own number and is scanned every time she comes in. And just like we wear Fitbits, um, cows are kind of doing the same thing. So it's funny how one technology can be used in so many different applications. 
now you produce about half a million glasses of milk a day. Uh, so you're producing milk as we speak down here uh, in the milking parlor. Uh, so how do you sell your milk? What you're, you're producing a lot of milk. Where does it go? Um, what's the market? So we're a member of Dairy Farmers of America, um, and that's a co-op, um, one of the largest in the countries. DFA, which is Dairy Farmers of America, um, handles all of the marketing for us. You know, so we don't have to worry about where our milk goes. We just need to make sure that the snow is plowed in the, uh, the wintertime so the milk trucks can, can get in. But our, our milk goes to many different brands. So you know, if you'd like to support our farm. You can go to your local grocery store and buy any dairy product. Um, there's a really good chance that a little bit of our milk is in there somewhere, you know, if you're here in New York. And that cooperative structure, structure is pretty common uh, amongst dairy farms, especially of your size in uh, in New York State, where you have a, what would be considered a commodity product, just the same as everyone else's product, and it goes into the large-scale industry. So just buying that gallon of milk at um, your local grocery store, your cheese, it's very likely that'll be your product and the combination of products from across the states or across the country. With all that milk going into one place, how do we ensure that it's always a high quality product, even though farms don't all have a paw there, making sure that things are taken care of? Where do we get that, that trust from that we have a safe uh, milk product? You know, that's a great question. I've certainly explained what we do on our farm, it, you know, in terms of that inspiring mission as to, as to why it's important to make sure that we produce quality milk. But there are other checks that are in the system. So when the milk truck driver will come to the farm to pick up the milk, they will pull a sample right out of our bulk tank. So that milk is, is, is tested for certainly the quality factors, but also for antibiotics. There, there can be no antibiotics in any milk that's sold. So you know, if you see um, you know, a claim that this milk has no antibiotics in it, you can put that claim on any gallon of milk that you see in the grocery store. Milk is a very highly regulated product, so there's a lot of checks and balances in the system, and consumers can be confident that farmers are doing the right thing, and then we're certainly verified every step of the way. Well, I really appreciate you having this, that conversation. I think um, just because we produce so many different things in New York State alone, nonetheless the country, and every food has to get processed in a different way. I think it can be really hard for consumers and the general public to understand the ins and outs of, of every industry. But that brings up a lot of questions too. So when talking to consumers who aren't involved in agriculture, one of their biggest concerns that come up with the dairy industry is that your dairy calves don't spend a lot of time with their moms. Or when you hear that, when people bring that concern to you, number one, how does that make you feel? And number two, how do you respond to that question? You know, I can tell you that our cows and our calves are both treated with the, with the highest quality of animal care. You know, we can certainly ensure that both the cow and the calf are being cared for properly. So after a calf is born, we do leave the cow and the calf together for a short period of time. The cow will actually lick off the calf and stimulate the calf and then we'll take the cow into the milking parlor and we'll get her milked you know, so we can get the colostrum. I was talking about testing the, the, the milk for human consumption. We actually test the colostrum before we feed it to the calf 
So because we're able to bring the cow in and, and milk her, we're able to test that colostrum to make sure that it's, it's good before we give it to the calf. I just had a really interesting analogy just recently is that a beef cow is more like a stay-at-home mom. You know, they, they stay together, they stay in pairs. She's able to be with that calf as it continues to grow and develop until they become a mother themselves or move on through the, the process, the beef process. Well, a dairy cow is more like a working mom. They get to spend some time together, but then she has to go back to work. And so that calf then goes to the nursery or to what we would consider daycare. And so what does your calving program look like? What happens after um, mom goes back to work and uh, the calves go go to um, their hutches or wherever it is, uh, however you house them here at, at Allen Way? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy. And, um, you know, it kind of goes into the difference between um, the, the breeds of, of cows. So beef, beef breeds actually don't tend to produce quite as much milk, uh, but they produce as much as their calf needs. Dairy cows produce much, much more than their calf needs, um, which actually I'm glad you brought that up so that I can talk about the milk that we do feed to our calves. The cows that have just had their calves were actually not allowed to sell their milk for a period of time after they've calved. That milk is still good and it's certainly good for the calf. So we don't let that milk go to waste. So I said we were milking about 2,800 cows and at any given time we have about 250 to 300 calves on the farm that are drinking milk before they go on um, and, and, and graduate up to eating grain and eating, eating hay and corn silage. We have it at, at any given time cows that we can't sell their milk. So we use the milk from about 40 or 50 cows to feed all the calves that we have on the farm. The remainder of the cows are, are, are producing extra milk, milk that's above and beyond what the calves need. So that's, that, that's the beauty of the, of, of, of the dairy farm here is that we can, we can use milk that we can't sell to feed the calves and then all the other cows' milk is able to be sold for human consumption. Um, just one other kind of misconception that I think people hear or I hear pretty often, people tend to get uncomfortable with the size of today's farms. Why are farms growing from the small 60 cow dairies and turning into operations with hundreds or thousands of animals? What's making that change? Specifically to talk about Allen Waite Farms, you can kind of walk through our barns and walk through our, our, our farmstead here. And it's, it's kind of a story of family history. So when, when, the, when the oldest generation came home to the farm, they built their first free stall and they built the first parlor and then the kids were going to college so they added another barn and they expanded their business to help cover those costs and then as each child came back and came into ownership on the farm you would see the farm grow again so another barn would be built so as 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 the family grows so does the farm I think that's a really interesting way to put it, that you can see the story of the farm developing through the generations. I think people really appreciate that story of families working together and, and agriculture being part of a tradition. So I think that's a really interesting thought that for the family to grow and stay involved in the farming operation has to support multiple incomes um, with, as their own families begin to grow and develop. So and I think seven generations here at Allen Way is, is pretty impressive. 
So in addition to your roles at home uh, and on this farm, last year you were elected as the chair of the American Farm Bureau Federation's Young Farmers and Ranchers Committee. What are some of your takeaways from your year as chair? With serving as chair, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to over a dozen different states. I went up to Canada, and I was even invited to the White House for the signing of the USMCA. So I've, I've certainly traveled a lot for this program. What I've seen is that there are amazing young farmers all across the country, just thinking of things from a different perspective, trying things a little bit different, and the way they're able to overcome adversity. It's really encouraging about the, the future of agriculture. And just to round out our time together, as we've talked about the past and the present, and what do you believe is the future of agriculture? What does that look like to you? So the future of agriculture um, will obviously experience a lot more pressure to consolidate. Um, farmers will have to make more food for a growing population with less land and less resources. Uh, but farmers are actually on the forefront of helping address climate change and any sort of climate issues. Farmers farm in a, in a very sustainable way and they've actually found that farming can sequester carbon in the ground and in the crops so it's not in the atmosphere. So certainly the future of farming will be all of that, but also I think we're going to see a lot more variety. And I think as there's more variety and more options, it provides more opportunities both for consumers and farmers. Paul is doing great work to connect young farmers from across the country with their communities, which is exactly what our next young farmer is doing in her life. Brianne Wilson not only lives and works on a family dairy, but she is also a fifth grade math teacher at Camden Middle School. Balancing these two big jobs isn't easy, but she does an exceptional job of blending food and farming with her math lessons. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Brianne. I have felt so lucky to have built a relationship with you over the last few years, ever since you first came to the National Agriculture in the Classroom Conference in uh, Maine with us. Uh, I have been loving watching your program grow and flourish. Uh, what I think is also so amazing about you is not only are you this exceptional classroom teacher, but you and your husband also own a dairy farm. I want to first talk about your teaching and then we'll talk about your farm. Can you tell us what you teach at Camden Middle School and also tell us a little bit about the community you teach in? Sure. I teach fifth grade math at Camden Middle School. Um, I have had different positions within my district. I've taught first grade, third grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Um, we have a small district, so wherever they need a teacher is kind of where they put you kind of thing. Um, but I have enjoyed all of my, my positions here. And what was your path to the classroom? How did you know you wanted to be a classroom teacher? So I honestly didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher starting out. My goal from growing up was that I was going to be a veterinarian. So I did a lot with 4-H and um, did a lot of activities through there and, and figured out that through Cornell Cooperative Extensions, the career exploration, um, that being a veterinarian probably wasn't what I was supposed to do. Um, I decided that I needed to choose a different path, and I did a lot of mentoring and helping the younger kids and found real enjoyment in that. 
So I figured out that that probably was the path I needed to take, and um, it naturally led me to education. Um, I knew that in teaching, I still wanted to connect my teaching to ag, so I needed to figure out a way to do that. And so I've tried really hard to incorporate ag in my lessons. And so you've always kind of been involved in agriculture. You grew up in an agriculture family, and that really shaped what you do now and where you wanted to go. Can you talk about um, what you did growing up in agriculture? What was your connection? Sure. So my parents had a racehorse farm, um, and from there I grew up not too far from where my husband actually grew up. So he was growing up on a dairy farm. Um, We were both in 4-H. We both showed our dairy cows. We were both in Holstein Club. And just coming through there, you have a lot of opportunities through different activities, whether it be judging or quiz bowl or something like that. Um, And we just, we naturally kept that path on so that when I got to be married, (laughs) it was like we both had this collection of cows and we're like, okay, now what do we do? And so we decided that we should um, convert my parents' racehorse farm to a dairy farm. And so we currently have about 70 head. We milk about 25. Um, Our cows are in a tie stall. And then our heifers and calves are in a freestyle. So those are two really big jobs, being a farmer and a teacher. So you have this operation at home uh, that you run with your husband. What are the benefits to being both a teacher and a farmer? I think that being a teacher and a farmer has provided me with opportunity to strengthen a lot of my skills. Um, Time management is something that you definitely need both in the teaching realm and also in the farmer realm. Um, You also need to have good record keeping. Um, Basically, you just need to be a hard worker, diligent, and detail-oriented. And I think that applies for both situations. Now, I'm sure there has to be some challenges when it comes to having both of these hats. Teachers spend a lot of time at school, but a farm also needs a lot of attention, also especially a dairy farm at that. So what are some of those challenges of being a dairy farmer and a teacher? Um, Time is definitely a challenge. You know, you need to be able to dedicate the time necessary to be successful to both situations. Um, But there are a lot of things that are out of your own control, too, that you have to deal with, whether it be a lack of resources, whether it be just poor luck, poor situations. Um, So you have to stay positive in both situations and do the best with what you have and then build upon what you have to be more successful. Um, With us, it's really important for us to be goal-oriented. So whether it's career goal-oriented or farm goal-oriented, if you want to produce high-quality milk, if you want to have, um, you know, quality milk awards, or if you're looking to produce um, a lot of production, or if you're looking to produce show cattle. So depending on what your goal is, that kind of drives both situations. Now, your family, you really have a heart for showing animals. And our teachers sometimes, uh, if I bring them to a county fair, they think, oh, there's an auction going on in the show ring. And no, we have to explain that it's a, it's a cattle show. So can you explain what, what is a cattle show? Why do you show cattle? So when people ask this a lot, because we do show at the county fair, they want to know what's going on. I liken it to a dog show that you might see on TV. For each breed, there's a breed standard. So you're trying to compare the animals that are going around the ring to the breed standard. And the one that closely, most closely resembles the breed standard is the one that places the best um, within that class. Um, so our goal for breeding those show cattle is to try to breed cattle that are working their way towards the breed standard, that have the genetics and have the um, type traits that are more breed standard oriented. 
And you don't show just locally. Uh, you have had some great success in your showing. And where where have has showing brought you? So we have registered Holsteins and registered Brown Swiss. Um, we show at our local county level. And then we've also gone to regional shows, state shows, and then on to more national shows uh, like in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or Madison, Wisconsin. The goal of most breeders is to get yourself an All-American Award. So um, you really want to get to those national shows and do well, and then people vote for your cows to you know, get, that, get that title. And showing is not only something that brings a lot of pride to your farm and a lot of pride to yourself, but you also develop a pretty strong network of other people who are also out there showing their animals also. Can you talk about some of the relationships you're able to build? Yeah, absolutely. We have the opportunity to meet a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, and especially when you get to those national shows, they're throughout the country. So it's neat to have conversations about them, about what they're struggling with or what their successes are. And you can, you know, learn about new cattle and, you know, what is working for them. So it's really interesting to learn from other people, but then also obviously develop those friendships and stay close. So coming back to your classroom, you've talked before about how it frustrates you when people get their information about food and agriculture from unreliable sources. But you as a math teacher really try to teach your students about how to understand data and be better consumers. What are some ways that you uh, talk about food and agriculture in your math classes? So some of the ways that we incorporate agriculture is basically talking about data and what you know percentages or numbers mean. Um, we also talk about what reliable information is and what information is necessary and what information is not necessary. Um, the biggest thing is exposing them to reliable sources. Uh, we do a lot with the Aggie that travels and shares information about um, different farms and different production throughout the country. Um, we just generally are exposing our kids to different things to make it so that they have options and so that they have resources that they can source to. So you're even finding that here in uh, a very rural school district, your students still aren't understanding why, what those cows are for, what that corn is for and in the field as they come into school every day. Even though we're in a very rural area and they're surrounded by, you know, fields that have crops growing, whether it's soybeans or corn or whatever, they don't know, they don't have that, that direct connection to the farm. We're generations off the farm at this point. So, oh, my grandma used to run a farm or my grandpa used to have a farm, but they don't have those stories and they don't have those connections to truly understand it. So it's important to make sure that wherever they are getting their information, that it's a reliable source and that it's an accurate source. So you love it when your class discussions somehow lead back to agriculture and you get to have these conversations. What are some examples that you might see in their schoolwork that comes out or in a homework assignment that leads them to this discussion about food or dairy? So one example that stands out to me is we were talking about fractions. And um, just to paraphrase, the farmer, you know, had a five-acre field, and they planted 500 seeds in this field. And so we ended up having the discussion about how that's not realistic, that you are not going to plant 100 seeds per acre. And if you do, you're not going to have much production from that. So it was interesting to have a conversation about, you know, how many seeds there are planted per acre, and then how different crops have different seeds planted per acre. And to really make that connection about, hey, you know that field that you see on Brewer Road? You know how many seeds are in that field? And try to make it real life and make a connection to them. 
And your milk uh, from your farm is sold to Chobani, which is now an international brand of Greek yogurt and so much more. Uh, you make sure that your students get coupons to go get their own Chobani yogurt after you do taste tests. So can you talk about your taste testing program and what your students get to experience? Sure. So the program or the activity that I did was um, the science behind dairy products. So we made cheese, we made yogurt, we made ice cream, we made sour cream, um, and then gave the kids the opportunity to actually taste what they made. So it was cool for them to see the science behind it and to understand that, but then it was really neat to see them enjoying their dairy products. And then what we did is um, Chobani was kind enough to give us the certificate so that each kid could get their own yogurt. And so it was neat for them to come back and say, you know, I tried this yogurt and it was so good. Or I tried this flavor. What flavor did you take? And it's neat to hear them having those conversations. And a more local brand to upstate and eastern New York is Stewart Shops. Uh, who they own their own dairy creamery and sell their milk and and really yummy ice cream um, and more from their hometown convenience stores located all over. (laughs) You hold an ice cream party each year with your students in your grade. What lessons or conversations pair with that ice cream party? Because I know it's not just an ice cream sundae party. It's definitely not. I definitely take advantage of the situation in order to have a little talk with the kids about how that ice cream got to them. So we basically start, you know, step by step. Yes, it's produced on the farm, but then where does it go? And when it, you know, gets to the processing plant, what tests does it go through? And why does it go through those tests? And why is it important to know that your your dairy product or whatever product in case has been tested and is safe for you to eat? So they're really surprised to hear through how much testing and how much their product actually goes through to get to them and how they are ensured that it's actually a safe product, and in this case, a very yummy product to have. (laughs) I just love that you do those two projects with your students uh, because dairy processing is one of those careers that are always begging for employees. They need employees. They pay good living wage jobs and benefits and retirement, Um, but it's really difficult for them to find uh, employees sometimes, and I think some of that is just image. It's You know, I have a big craft plant in uh, my home county, and to drive by and see this big fence and these big walls and you know windows, you don't really know what's going on inside of there. But you're really giving your students a hands-on opportunity to hope for for hopefully something will spark with them. Absolutely. And so I want them to know what goes on, you know, as the process goes from cow to container. But I also want them to know that it's not just like you're not going to just work on a dairy farm milking cows. There's so much more than that. And I try to do that by um, participating in my school's career fair. So I bring a calf every year, which always draws attention. And the kids come over and take a look at the brochures and little posters I have. And they're really amazed that there's so much more when it comes to ag career than just being a farmer, whether it's a technician you know, a diesel tech or whether it's um, a geneticist or whether it's a nutritionist that might be on the farm. And you can explain to your students why it's important that all these people are working in agriculture and the important role that they play. So if you don't want to be the person that's milking the cows, that's a-okay. You can still have a job in ag. I think just for students and even teachers, when I do teacher trainings, to realize how many different people step foot on a farm in a day or services that are rendered from outside of um, of the farmer and the family that's running the farm, I think they would be so surprised. 
people in marketing and and business and sales and um, scientists who come. Maybe there's a Cornell scientist coming to do a test plot on their mm-hmm. land um, or just to check their soil. Uh, so many different people are stepping foot on a farm every day who are not farmers themselves. And they're all needed. So we need people in those positions like from now until eternity. <laughs> so that is always a, a career path. Any of those are all career paths that are always going to need people. So if you can get the kids to realize that, you know, that sounds interesting. I want to work with my hands or I want to be able to do something that doesn't require me to go to college for a four-year degree. This is all possible and it's all possible in ag. I also think it's interesting how the community, the agriculture community, we all have to work together to move the industry forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's important for students to see also that it's not just, we can't do it alone, just like we want them to be good collaborators uh, in their schoolwork and hopefully when they move on to their careers, that we all have to work together. Um, And I think agriculture is a perfect example of how we all try to move the industry forward in positive ways um, because we can't rely only on ourselves. We have to rely on those partners outside of the farm also. Absolutely. Without all those other people and all the other jobs and all the services they provide, you couldn't do it alone. You couldn't couldn't even unsuccessfully do it alone. You just couldn't. Like, it would not happen. And while your heart is in dairy, um, dairy is not where it stops in your classroom. Uh, So I love that you want to give your students a really great view of local food and agriculture. And one of the ways you did that, a new project you took on, was a maple project through DonorsChoose.org, and you did some fundraising. Can you talk about what that fundraising was for and how you're integrating a maple project into your classroom? Sure. So um, I was a little nervous, but I thought it would be neat to be able to make maple syrup with my class. Um, And on our home farm, we just make enough for us to have, you know, on our pancakes all year long. So I really decided that I was going to delve into it. And um, I did write a grant for Donors Choose to try to get funding. They were able to provide taps and buckets and all the little nitty gritty stuff that you need to tap some trees. And um, so last year, we just kind of went for it. (laughs) With the support of my team, we tapped, um, I think we tapped six or seven trees out behind our district office here, right, you know, a quarter mile away, we walked out and we just tapped the trees and um, we ended up boiling in our home ec rooms and we made syrup and we actually participated in the New York Ag in the Classroom Sugar Contest. That was pretty exciting. How did your students react to that contest or to that program you, you developed? Well, they love getting out of the classroom. So being able to go out and walk through the snow and tap trees and they were shocked to see immediately when you tap the tree that the sap runs. I don't think many of my kids have had that opportunity before. So to see that happen and to be like mesmerized by like, this is where syrup comes from? Well, kind of. You have to get to the next point. So to, you know, to get them to experience that and be involved in that and then just see how much work it takes to actually make a gallon of maple syrup um, was shocking to them, but it was a great experience and they had a great time and they truly enjoyed our pancake breakfast we had to celebrate too. That had to be a interesting experience for them because I'm sure you were not using tractors to haul your your yeah. your sap back into the school. They were probably huffing it in, and they did. We had five gallon buckets. We were carrying it back in and storing it in the refrigerator. So yeah, it was quite the undertaking. And I'm sure it also probably made them think like, what could make this process easier Absolutely. for us, right? Yeah, <laughs> their engineering brains started to come out. They did. They they said, can we have like a, an assembly line? Can we pass the buckets? Like. 
Okay, we'll work on that for next year, guys. <laughs> so I want to know, in general, when you're talking about food and agriculture uh, as uh, as part of their daily lives and integrating it through your classroom, how do your students react to that when that's what you're talking about or a project that you're working on that's hands-on? How does it change your dynamic in your classroom? Um, they're very interested to think outside the box. Um, we did a, a project last year with Eat Smart New York when we planted lettuce seeds. So not only do they learn about planting lettuce and you know the growth cycle of that, but they learned about different varieties of lettuce and the different growth periods of it. And so if you give them the opportunity to put the pencil and paper down and get down and dirty in the soil and plant things and, and then see their projects come to fruition, that's when the real spark comes. When they see the little baby lettuce coming out of the ground, they're really excited. Or when they taste that maple syrup, they're really excited, like, wow, I made this. This is cool. I know how this happened. Now, along with being an amazing teacher and dairy farmer, you are also mom to two little boys in local schools. And not only do you invest your time in your students here in the classroom, but you invest your time in their schools also talking about agriculture. What types of activities have you taken on to teach about agriculture in their classrooms? So my little guys are in first grade and pre-K. So I've spent um, Ag Literacy Week reading the books to them and providing the lessons, um, just trying to get them, even at the young age that they are, to try to get their classmates to realize where their food comes from. Um, if you ask little people where their food comes from, it comes from mommy or it comes from a store, which is true, but where did that come from? So it's really good to get them to realize that, you know, at some point someone produced that for them. And, you know, where did your your tomatoes come from in February? And, you know, where did your maple syrup come from in July? So it's interesting to have those conversations and, and the, you know, the little guys are especially fun to talk to, too. So it's it's fun to do. And I'm sure your boys are probably a minority in their classrooms be coming from a farm. Uh, so that's something special that they have that they can offer and share their experiences and stories with. You know, as we talked about, we're generations removed now from mm -hmm. agriculture, right? Right. So it's, it's pretty unique that they do come from a farm background. And um, our boys are in the barn with us every night. So they see the good, the bad. They kind of have a really good handle on what's going on. So, you know, they see the calves being born. They see, you know, the calves that are born at two o'clock in the morning, you know, not that they're out there with us, but they hear the stories when there's a calf that just has magically arrived the next night when they're there, you know, when was this calf born? And they know about, you know, when they're sick or what you have to do to feed them and take care of them. And they don't know about the different crops that we raise. So um, I think that they will be good advocates in the future. And I hope that they are. I hope they enjoy what we're doing. So what do you believe is going to be the future of agriculture, whether it's for your students or for your boys or for your farm? Um, however that comes across to you, what do you think the future of agriculture will be? I think the future of agriculture is going to do with diversity. So we've got to have a lot of different options when it comes to agriculture. I also think that agriculture is actually going to get back more to being local. So I think that people are going to want to know where their food comes from. And they're going to want to know who makes their food, who grows their food. Um, so I think it's important that people realize that and that they realize that they, as, you know, if they're students, they can play a role in that, that they can be part of that chain of production. 
Well, I think that you are setting your students up for success by having a greater awareness and understanding of food and agriculture that's impacting their daily lives. We can't thank you enough for everything you do uh, and as a teacher and also for sharing your story on Outstanding in Their Field. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on New York agriculture in the classroom, visit agclassroom.org forward slash NY. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service. Visit the show notes to learn more about our guests today and follow their adventures in the barn and in the classroom. For now, thanks for listening. And stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.